Hello and welcome to the Business Embedding Podcast. Today I'm joined by Ben Cray. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Ben Cray. Ben, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, hi, Jake. Thanks very much, mate. Uh, I feel like I'm in a steam company here, but uh, we'll do our best tonight for you. No, no, I'm very much looking forward to chatting. Let's start with your uh, first experiences in the betting and wagering world. In the betting and wagering world, well, you know, probably at the age of three or four or five when my father was taking me to the uh, to the greyhound track. He was a, uh, a greyhound trainer, not a very good one, but had a couple of winners, I guess, along the way. Uh, my grandfather was a, a penciler for a bookie and they used to take me along to the dogs uh, every week. Uh, back then I was told that I had a, a bit of a photogra- photographic uh, memory and I had a little book uh, with all the dog tracks uh, of New South Wales in it and all the track record holders and apparently I was a bit of a circus act when I was a young kid and uh, my grandfather would basically win money betting on against other people and would sort of say, why don't you ask my little uh, grand, grandson here what the track record is at Coonabarabran and I'd rattle <laughs> off 25.75 or something like that and my pop would, you know, win, I don't know what it was back then, a dollar or whatever the equivalent was back then. But uh, So unfortunately, <clears throat> I didn't have much hope from uh, from that age. Um, always went to the track with mum and dad um, on road trips to, to the Greyhounds, etc. And then um, dad also liked the trots. And uh, I pretty much went every Friday night with him to Harold Park. I always sort of joke that I think I must have been conceived at Harold Park, you know, nine months before. Mm-hmm. Some some stage he probably got a good trifecta, and uh, and here I am. So. <laughs> so why do you think it was trots and greyhounds in your family? Because I think you know people in their twenties might find it hard to believe that uh, they could have been that popular. Well, as we sort of just discussed off air, you know, back in the day. Um, they were as popular, you know, if not more popular than of, of the most of the codes there. You know, you could go to Harold Park and there would be, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 people there. There was 50 bookmakers on the other side of the track on the ledger, let alone on the on the, on the, uh, on the normal side, you know. So um, I think it was just the atmosphere. Harold Park, there was nothing really like it, you know, going to Harold Park there. It was five minutes walk from the city and – you could go there and you're on top of the horses and the crowds and it was just fantastic and I, I guess that's probably what I liked and um, it was a bit more, you know, user-friendly to actually see the horses, I guess, than going to the gallops. My my parents weren't really into the gallops too much, you know. I always bet on, on them as a kid, never never really successfully. Um, but I think it was just the atmosphere of the trots, you know, seeing them as close as you do and the noises and the lights and et cetera. It was probably what, what hooked me, I guess. Who was your biggest influence back then? You know, early days. Was it your father or your grandfather? What can you recall from those days? 
or they're both no one in my family is any good at it so uh, there wouldn't have been anyone uh, at that stage and to be honest I was never any good at, at what I do probably you know I've been in the business now for 15 years but you know I'm probably haven't been a winning punter until maybe six or seven years ago so um, I've sort of you know decided to take on board seriously and, and that's when I've you know decided that was going to be my career so to, to be honest, there wasn't sort of anyone in the early day, in the real early days, until I started working with professionals. And there's been a, quite a few people along the line that have definitely influenced me. So, did you start part time or semi professionally, or were you a casual punter doing it for fun and entertainment? Yes, that was it. Um, doing my doing my wage every week, as as we've all probably been there. Uh, and I'm quite good at mathematics, etc. So I decided one day I've had enough of losing on the punt. I want to be on the other side. And uh, I was only uh, into my marriage about a year, and my wife said, go for it, and uh, applied to get a uh, bookmaker's licence. And the the cheapest licence you could get at that stage in New South Wales was a Greyhound licence. You needed $20,000 in the bank, and it was sort of went up in 10 grand increments the more, you know, if you went to the trots or then you went, you know, um, that was just the start of the country Greyhounds, mind you. So off to Cessnock Greyhounds and Singleton Greyhounds, I went, got my licence, got a little bank together, and uh, that's where I started. I, I, I did two days a week of bookmaking at Singleton and on a uh, sorry at Cessnock Greyhounds on a Thursday, Singleton uh, Greyhounds on a Friday, and then every second Saturday I'd go up to Kempsey Greyhounds and actually work the gallops at the Greyhounds, the aways. So why did you start with bookmaking in the beginning, and I guess with Greyhounds? That was the cheapest uh, license that I could get. Yeah, so um, uh, you know, to get a greyhounds license, you either needed twenty twenty thousand to forty thousand dollars, depending on where you worked. To get a trots license, you needed fifty to to a hundred thousand. Then to get a gallops license, you needed you know hundred to to as much as you to put your house on the line. So I didn't have anything like that when I started, and the, the cheapest way I could get into it was on the greyhounds. So off I went. So what type of preparation was required to be prepared to do something of that magnitude? It sounds like you're Flicked a switch and had a stand at the track, or was there sort of a transition process in place? No, pretty much, mate. Um, you know, it take, took, a, I think, something like a month to six weeks to, to get my licence. Uh, once it got all approved, you know, I got all the gear. I actually had a uh, – back then I had a mentor uh, from the Central Coast named Graham Walshaw, who was a, a local bookmaker, and he pretty much taught me the first uh, things that I needed to know about bookmaking and, you know, how to – back in the days, obviously, you know, how to write ledgers on the books and – you know, uh, this is pre-computer days, obviously, and this is, I've still got my board, you know, in my office now here, I've still got uh, the board with the 6 to 4 and the 13 to 8 and all that sort of stuff on it. I've got my bag and I've got a uh, a framed uh, photo of, with the, my very first ledger and a couple of, some of my old tickets still sitting there and they're sitting prior to drawing in my office. So, um, yeah, it was basically within a couple of months uh, <clears throat> off to Cessnock Greyhounds I went and, uh, and that was that. It went from there. So how'd it go? Were you break even or successful even? You know, a good day was winning five or six hundred. Um, I actually, I do have a story. The very, the very first, I lie. The first time I went was Kempsey Greyhounds, and I actually had to do the aways, the the gallops. And the very first race that I ever bookmake on was a, a hurdle in Adelaide at you know eleven thirty in the morning or something like that. And a bloke came over and it was a dollar thirty shot in the race, and we used to get the prices. I, I lived on the Central Coast, so that was a good four hour drive. So we drive up in the morning. And um, my brother would be driving and I'd be in the passenger seat writing then the prices off 2KY in the morning. That's how we got our prices, you know, off probably someone like Mark Lambert or someone to the equivalent back then. And uh, 
yeah, there was a hurdle in the first race, and it was a dollar thirty shot, and a bloke walked over and had three thousand on it. And I thought, oh yeah, this is pretty exciting, and uh, and it was gone. This horse was gone. Uh, with with two hurdles to go, there was another 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 horse was probably a hurdle in front, and of course it walked through the hurdle and fell over, and the threes on shot just managed to uh, walk over the line in in front and and won. And I did nine hundred bucks on my first bet, and I thought, well. This this is a pretty hard <laughs> pretty hard way to start, but uh, it's it sort of uh, you know I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed going to the track. Um, even then, I was the only bookmaker on track um, at Cessnock Singleton. I was the only bookmaker on track. I loved it. There was no you know no one had phones in the days. You couldn't you know there was no sports bets and, and tabs and all this sort of stuff. There was basically an, an on course uh, tote which didn't have any money in it. So basically you were the, you know, you were the only place where they were betting. And, um, yeah, I loved it. Learned a lot there, absolute lot. You know, you can only learn by doing it. But uh, I never made any money out of doing it. It was just too hard. There was no one really coming to the races anymore. A big day would be sort of 100 or 150 people there and everyone's having $5 bets. And the one bloke that's having a $100 bet was the one that was smart and he'd end up sort of beating you. So... We didn't really lose at the game, but we didn't really make any money out of it. And um, I sort of did that for the best part of two years and, and sort of just decided I wasn't really going anywhere with it. I, I couldn't sort of work to the next level. And that's when I decided to uh, <clears throat> try and find a job somewhere in the industry. And I, and I saw a job uh, with what was Betstar in the day with Alan Iskander and I applied for it. And... Um, I didn't have any experience except for that being a bookmaker on track, but that didn't really sort of equate to anything that he had done. And uh, he, I basically said, I'll fly down to see you in Melbourne. And I flew down the next day to see him in Melbourne. And he sort of liked and he liked the fact that I was uh, eager and, and did that off, off my own bat and offered me a job in Betstar. And uh, I ended up being the very first person that was in the office in Betstar in Darwin. Yeah, that was quick. So did you, you're up in Darwin, the corporate wagering world. How did that play out? Alan started Betstar then. There was myself and three other guys that started in the office. Uh, ended up staying there for sort of three years. Um, we did everything, you know. We did racing, we did sport. We did all sorts of, all, all kinds of, uh, all three codes of racing and sport. Back in the day, you know, I can remember us doing sport on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, after we'd been out all night and we're sitting there and we've got screens all over the all over the uh, walls and we've got Pinnacle up there and watching the odds change and we had to manually change every odds, you know, to, to go with it on, on US sports or we'd be manually changing every bloody uh, racing odds that they were, even though there was, you know, we had it from the call from the track, but you'd still have to actually manage books back then. And and uh, we sort of all managed to sort of get our roles in the end and I, I ended up becoming sort of the guy that was looking after trots and dogs there. And um, back in those days... No one was really doing fixed odds of trots, and uh, we were going up first in the trots, and we had quite a good uh, clientele then and making really good books, and uh, we were offering things like the Inter-Dominion six months out, the Miracle Mile six months out, and the Tavern that weren't allowed to do that, so with anyone that were offering sort of markets, um, long-term future markets in the trots and dogs, so uh, that was that was quite a good learning curve too, and working for, you know, Alan Iskander, that was that was great. Um, learned a lot, a lot off him, the way he does things. He obviously does things a lot different to others. And uh, the two or three other managers that were in the uh, company at the time, I learned great things off them too, which uh, sort of, you know, parts of what I've brought with me to, to what I do now. 
How different was the on-course experience versus the office in Darwin? Was it pure bookmaking in both situations or were there sort of different aspects to it? It was. Um, Mike, you know, when, when I was on the track, you know, a, a good hold for me would be a 1000 or 1200 bucks for the for, for a race. That would be a really good hold. Sometimes you might only ride a couple of bets. In fact, I remember one night on State of Origin night, we decided to go to, to Richmond Greyhounds and we drove that's a good two and a half hour drive for us and we went down there and we literally ate one bet on state of origin night and i'm like well i'll never do i learned never to do that again but um yeah no we made books um and then when we went to darwin we all we we did make books originally but alan was sort of i guess a leader in his field in that he started to play heads a bit um so even though we did make books and we had you know um a lot of clients and whatever the bigger clients you know he sort of did play heads a bit, which is what exactly all the bookmakers do these days. I mean, the, the major difference would be that, you know, a big bet when it was my own stuff might have been five or $600 on something. In those days, it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, even sometimes into the $100,000 mark. So um, that was the, the major difference. But um, once you sort of once you sort of knew what you're doing, it doesn't really matter what size it is. It's all the same rules, I guess. So from there, did you transition to betting on harness and trots? Uh, well, look, I, I, I always bet on it. Um, still, I was okay at it, but I never really had any uh, direction in it. And I was never, you know, I knew what I was doing. I could pick winners and I knew how to, to bookmake on it. But I was still, you know, what everyone calls a pickle punter. Uh, I stayed in Darwin for three years. And then um, <clears throat> we worked, our business worked very closely with a guy named Hamish Davidson, who owned a company called Sports Betting uh, at the time. And he was down in Wollongong. And I wanted to get out of Darwin, you know, I was from Central Coast, just an hour north of Sydney, so I thought Wollongong was, was pretty close to home, and I managed to get a job with him for a couple of years. Uh, he was pretty much the most influential person in, in my career. He he was just unbelievable what he knows and, and the way he thinks, and uh, he taught me what I know about sports betting, which I do do a bit of now. Um, but just everything he did was just unbelievable. He's, he's you know, and then he's got... Good family that's in the industry, Stu Davidson and Alan Davidson, his, his dad, or both bookmakers and very well-respected, and I learned a really good deal there. I was there for a couple of years. A very uh, small company, not a lot of clients, but the clients we had back then were, were massive. They were the, the biggest names in the industry, and it was no, nothing for us there to take sort of twenty and $30,000 bets all the time on, on sport especially, and I learned... Not so much uh, a lot in racing there, but I learned a lot about sports betting there and, and how to calculate uh, percentages, um, etc., and how to, to cal calculate percentages on points, what, what points are worth in various sports and how to make books. And I've never seen anyone make books like he does. Though. The books we made at his place were just unbelievably good. What was so unique about Hamish? He, he, was, he was a punter that, that, had a bookmaker's, uh, that had a bookmaker's shop, so he used... There's just ways that he did sport that that uses it to make books. Like you know, if we needed to lay something, then it'd be you know, if we needed to lay something, uh, if sorry, if yeah, if we needed to lay something, he'd be sort of the top odds the other side, or blah blah blah, or we'd be backing stuff the plus if we needed to get to get some of the minus, etc. Without going into it too much, um, I just learnt that you know, NRL and AFL and and to a less extent Union and basketball and and, and a few other sports where where points are, you know, where points are what they are, I learned that, you know, one point in NRL is worth 1%, for instance, and two points in NRL is worth 5 or 6%, for instance. And and I use those theories still to, to this day to actually uh, to bet on sport. Um, all the sport betting I do is non-opinionated whatsoever. 
um, it's all done the very same way. So um, I basically make books out of it. And but he taught me everything. I, you know, like, not everything I know, but he taught me a great deal. He, he was he's an unbelievably smart guy in this industry. So greyhounds, harness, sports betting, thoroughbreds along the way. I'm guessing now you're ready for retirement after that. No, so I went, there was one more in the in the uh, in the run. Then um, you know Hamish's place was great, um, but then a, uh, a company called Bet Three Six Five decided to start a, start in Australia, and uh, you know the the wages they were offering were you know without without going into it were quite good. And um, you know, I was promised to be a harness manager there, and I thought, well, I forget into this company um, at the start. And this is sort of when all the English, you know, when all the English companies were coming out. I think it was 2012 or 13. And uh, I was actually there for a year before before they actually went live. Uh, there was probably 20 or 30 of us there for a year in the in the offices in North Sydney before it went live. And believe it or not, uh, about a week before they went live, I decided I I didn't want to be there anymore. I didn't like the philosophy of of what they did and, and of what the English companies were going to do. And about a week before they started, I said that was it, and uh, I quit, and that's when I started on, I guess, started trying to become a professional punter. Wow, okay. Are you able to share some of the reasons, or are you keeping that close to the chest? <laughs> Let's just say we didn't exactly get on with some of the management there, to, to be honest, but um, uh, but uh, I just didn't like the philosophies. I knew, you know, I knew what was going to be happening, and um, we were told it wasn't going to be happening, and you know, it's ended up happening. So that's not how I wanted to bookmake. And you know, I didn't want to be just a, a trader, and that's probably, besides the fact I want to probably have me back anymore. I, I just don't want to, you know, I would, I, I'd struggle to go back into that environment in any corporate now because you just can't make books. You're literally just playing heads and and playing winners and losers, and, and it's all about, you know, how much money each person costs you, each client costs you, or, or they make you you know so um, I didn't want to be in that and I just decided it was time I came home one night uh, from what I said was a good pretty good bloody paying job and I said to my wife I hate this job and what it's going to be and she said just leave and I left and um, and then we started what what, what what I have now yeah so take us through that what made you at that time decide to focus on harness racing it was always something as I said I was probably best at uh, I enjoyed doing so what I did then um, I went to a company I saw an ad one day in a, for a company called Champion Picks back at the time they are now Champion Bets and a guy named Dave gave me uh, a start there being a tipster with him um, I was pretty pretty raw at the time but we come up I did quite a bit of trials for them and you know he decided he knew what I was doing and we come up with some strategies on how to stake it and, and how to bet etc and I think he sold 50 or 60 memberships within a day and I stayed there for pretty much two to three years, being what it's like to think one of his most successful uh, analysts he had there. And um, yeah, and, and I sort of got a, a really good clientele there, and everyone sort of started to know who I was, and I guess in the industry, in the trotting industry anyway. And um, yeah, after being there for about two years, he was, you know, that was a great job for me. It was sort of a part time thing, and I was still learning how to punt, obviously. You know, it's not something that anyone learns properly overnight and even now I still am learning things but I was learning new techniques and new things what to do and I've got quite a you know I was gaining quite a quite a number of friends in the industry that are quite influential and I'm always asking for advice and I'm always asking you know how they do things and I take a little bit from everyone but after two years with them I decided I, I didn't really want to uh, continue down that path of just being forced to, to pump out prices if, if I didn't want to if you know what I mean so I decided that was the end of that, and that's when I decided that uh, 
punting was going to be it. So that was probably five, four or five years ago now, I guess. Um, I've still always had a couple of other little contracts that I do. Like, for instance, I still do stuff for a company called Giddy Up that send ratings into pubs and clubs, etc. cetera. Um, Betfair, I've been working doing the ratings for them for a few years. A few other various gigs around that I've um, did. I worked for um, HRV, which is Harness Racing Victoria, for a couple of years. I did all the prices for them that went into the newspaper and, the, and, a, and a free form guide called online form guide called Good Form. There was a bit of radio work every, every morning giving the tips to, to RSN in the morning. Um, so there's a lot of stuff sort of going on. Uh, I was very busy until probably uh, – and then so after I left Champion Picks, the work with HRV went on for till probably about two years ago. And then uh, just social media then took over. You know, I started uh, just tweeting out some tips and the followers started liking the tips and then I'd put the hashtag Ben's Best on the end of it just as a bit of fun. Next thing you know, it was everyone wanted to know what today's Ben's Best was and I hadn't been at Champion Picks for probably a year or so and I decided, well – I think it's time for me to start my own website up. And uh, that's where Racebook came along. And I thought that was a pretty clever name, Racebook, Race BK, Race Ben Cray. It all sort of went together. And, uh, yeah, I started selling just uh, my own tips on New South Wales and Vic Trots. They're the two states that I concentrate on. And uh, it all started from there. Take us through your philosophy and approach to harness racing and what are some of the fundamentals that you rely on? Uh, look, it's changed a lot over the years. I never, I never really un- understood what was involved until I, like I said, I spoke to a lot of a lot of smart people, and you know, I like to sort of surround myself with winners and and know what they do and ask them everything. But for me, that the most important, you know, the first thing I do is uh, I do a speed map. I work out what's going to be leading or what I think is going to be leading. Obviously, what's going to be behind the leader, which are probably the two best spots in the trots these days, and then what's going to be in the top four or five, and I try and work out if there's going to be fast speed or, or not much speed. Um, and they're the horses I really like to concentrate on. I sort of I don't really like to concentrate on back markers, um, even though they do win. They seem to be money munchers. Um, so the first thing I really like to do is a speed map. Um, the next thing I like to do is check out the prices they were, in an, if and if it was a similar type of race before. Um, so for instance, you know, for horse. Might have been even money last start in a in a pretty much the same race, and today it's eight dollars. I want to find out whether or not it was a genuine even money chance last time, and whether or not it was unlucky, or or whether it was actually an eight dollar chance last time and was the wrong price. You know, if I work out, well, hang on, it probably wasn't even money chance last time, and it's eight dollars this week. Well, I'm happy to forgive one bad run and and probably be on it this time. So that's a you know an SP profile is something I like to to really get into and decide whether it was the right price or not last time. I, um, I obviously watch a lot of videos, but um, I mean, I watch the races every day. But my main part is watching the first 200 to see the gate speed. And you can pretty much flick through the rest of the race until the last three or 400 and see see what happened there, whether there was anything unlucky, you know, whether anything ran into dead ends, blah, blah, blah. Um Another thing that I never really took too much notice of early in the piece was was drivers and how how important they are. Um, you know, the best drivers are the best drivers for a reason, and they have so much on the other drivers. You know, there's there's just levels and 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 one you know it's not so much a secret anymore, but everyone knows that, that you know the uh, the the positives of a of a positive driver change are just huge. Like someone that may have only had x amount of winners, and then someone like Chris Alford dropped. Drop, 
gets on or Luke McCarthy or these type of guys, you know, a positive driver change is massive in trots. So that's another another thing that I always look for to see who's driving it and whether they've actually driven it before and won on it before. It might have been 20 starts ago they had one drive on it and it, and it improved. So you know that it might race well for that driver. And then another thing I like to look for is um, is, is distances. And again, I didn't really understand how much this was in the trots because certain horses might be able to win over a mile and they might be able to win over 3,000 metres, but not all of them can most horses are, are sort of designed to run mile racing in trots here. And uh, even up to, you know, when they, once they get to 1,900, 2,100 or 2,300, there's not a lot of horses that can actually run that distance at, at, at the right pace. So uh, that's another huge thing about whether they can actually run the distance or not. So they're probably the four main indicators that I look for when I do, do form these days. So some of those seem to be commonly used in thoroughbred racing and, and greyhounds. Have you picked apart the best elements from those different areas to utilize yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. and it doesn't and, and, and it doesn't matter whether i talk to some of my friends who are the best pro punters for gallops and i've got friends that are best pro punters for greyhounds they seem to be the same sort of sort of things you know like especially speed maps speed maps you know obviously jockeys drivers and and trainers and then um you know uh the the tempo of the race obviously is is important in all three Probably not so much in dogs because they go awful leather the whole way, but obviously in gallops and trots, and uh, and then the SP profile, um, and then that probably leads us into the next topic. But um, you know, for the trots, personally, I don't actually take too much notice of the market, whereas a lot of, well, I know most people in the gallops take a lot of uh, interest in the market, and they sort of let that sway their opinion a little bit, I guess. Before we get to that, I want to ask another question about your analysis approach. How much of it is gut feeling or having a sense of what will or, or could happen in a race? It's funny because uh, a lot of people do think, obviously everyone does things differently and if they didn't, you know, we'd all come up with the same result. Some people have databases where they spit everything they put is into a database and it spits out what they need to know. I don't have a database. I've got my head and unfortunately I can't tell you probably what I did with my wife last week, but I can tell you where every horse ran and what they did and what price they were and whether they were unlucky or not just from watching it and, and remembering. I sort of have a bit of a photographic memory that way, I guess. It's a bit of a sick one to have, but unfortunately it's what I've got. So uh, everything's gut feel with me. Um, if you've ever seen me price a race, I have a spreadsheet. I price I price everything to uh, somewhere between 115 120%. I've got a program that I did once borrow from the great Stuart Davidson. It's a, it's a skewed program, and what it does, and, and you've talked about it before, it converts 115 to 100%, but it, it, it skews the – you know, it does the favourite long shot bias. Um, so – and then I go, go one more time. I then uh, add 30% on top of that, which which makes the market somewhere about 75 to 80%. Um, so I'm getting real value in anything I back. So um, when I'm – when I do my odds, I probably do them a little bit different to someone else. I sort of like to find the, the things I think can win, and then I try and work out what what percentage I think they are of winning. So if something's you know if, if I think something's a fifty percent chance of winning, and I'm working to a hundred and twenty percent market, obviously I'll put that in at sixty percent, which is you know dollar ninety whatever it is around that sort of mark, and then I go to the next pick and I sort of work out what chance it's got, and the next pick. And then I go from there, and that's the way I price a market. Um, the very first time I was ever told how to price a market in Greyhounds, again from a man named Graham Walshaw, he always told me 
price, uh, 100% market to the top four picks, and then your other 10 or 20% to your next four picks, the ones you don't think can win. And I, that's always stuck in my brain there too. So pretty much everything I do is gut feel. There's no there's no database whatsoever, um, you know, except for the one that's in my head. And, uh, you know, once I look at a race and sort of analyse it, you know, um, people can be amazed that I can I can pretty much price a race in about three minutes. I just go bang and, and can work it out. And, and it's, you know, you've, you've, when you do it every day, 30 or 40 times a day for, for however many years you've been doing it, you invariably come up with somewhere between 115 and 120% just unconsciously doing it now. Yeah, no, and I would posit that you probably have a very stringent process in place, uh, albeit not written down or done by a computer or an algorithm, and that framework gets you to the to the right number ultimately. It was funny. We did a uh, <clears throat> we did a, a live podcast for Champion Picks when I was there one day, and they wanted to know how do I price a race, and I think it was on a Thursday, and I priced the race live. Uh, for everyone via Skype, via video Skype, obviously, and they were watching me do it. And I, I priced a race in about, I don't know, three or four minutes, and I came up with something at 250 or thereabouts, you know, and it was six bucks or somewhere at sports. Someone come over and goes, this horse is $6 at sports bet. Next thing you know, it was $4. Ended up starting 250 and ended up winning the race pretty easy. So it was actually done live one day on a podcast. It's out there somewhere on the internet. <laughs> it's proof. It's real. So... You see the numbers, you want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. Take us through, once you've done all your analysis and ratings, what's your strategy when attacking the marketplace? It's changed over the day, over, over the years. I used to do everything just to 100% market and back every horse that's overs. Um... Then when I started my company uh, at Racebook, I, I did that method. Then I found that uh, there's a guy that uh, works for me that does the greyhounds, and he come up he come up with the approach that we add an extra thirty percent on to just get the real good value horses. So that's you know it takes the market to somewhere about somewhere about eighty uh, percent or seventy five to eighty percent around that sort of part. So then you know when you're betting when you're betting to a hundred percent market, you, you can back anything from one two to maybe five or six horses in a race which is which i don't have a problem doing when you when you add that 30 percent value on top of that you just find you're probably only backing one maybe two in a race so that was something we we did and i went through a couple of years of uh of my old sheets and worked out that i was about 60 70 percent off better doing it this way just by picking out the the value ones uh, and when I had my company, I was always uh, asking them what they wanted, what people wanted. And in the end, they actually, for the last few months before I before I stopped the company two weeks ago, um, they actually just wanted tips. It was just too hard to have to have every every horse and every race uh, with ratings on it. You know, this is the the nature of the beast these days. It's like twenty twenty cricket versus test match. Everyone wants something simple. So in the end, I was just picking out the two or three. Horses that I really wanted to be on, uh, and uh, sending him out at a minimum price, and uh, as long as you got that minimum price, it was still a bet. So, I've sort of taken that approach into um, into it now. I, I'll I've still price every race, and I've still got a price for every horse at, at the seventy five to eighty percent. But I'll go through those early markets, and and again, that's, that's probably another topic. But uh, you know, the market, the one market that's out in the morning, everyone copies these days. So you have a pretty good idea which horse is going to be uh, value by the time everyone's up. 
and uh, that's the way I approach it now. I sort of look at look at each race and, and decide which ones I really want to be and which ones tick all the all the boxes. You know, are they going to be leaders? Are they going to have the right drivers? Are they going to you know everything that's sort of going for it? I want to be on those ones. So these days, uh, I'm probably only having you know one to two to three bets per day on on my own stuff. So what about the minimum price? Are you suggesting a stake that goes with that? Is it level staking, or how, how do you how do you approach it? So it's all it's a it's a bit of a Kelly type thing, but um, I've always done this one fairly the same way. So, um, for instance, if you have a ten thousand dollar bank, I like to 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 work to divide that by twenty, and and we're going to bet that that much per race. Obviously, five percent of that, but we're not going to bet that much. What what I like to do is I like to bet to collect that much. At my price. So, for instance, if you've got a bank of uh, of ten thousand um, dollars, I want to bet in a race to collect five hundred dollars at the price I market. So, not the price that it is in the market, but the price that I market. So, for instance, if I think it's an even money chance, and I'm betting to a ten thousand dollar bank, that means I want to bet to collect five hundred dollars. I'm going to have two hundred and fifty dollars on it because I've I've got it at evens. Now, if I'm getting three dollars, obviously I'm going to get a nice collect. If I'm getting five dollars, I'm going to get a better collect. So, obviously the you know, the more edge I think I've got, the better result it's going to be for me in the end. What was the genesis of that? Is it based on previous results and that was the that was what the numbers suggested you do? It sounds like if you're betting on an even money chance, you'll have 250 on and as you go up the price range, you're having less on. Is that fair to say? That, only what I rate it, for instance. So, I mean, if I rate it, you know, if I rate it $4, I'm going to have $125 on it, but it might be a 10 to 1 chance. For instance, so it's it's I base my staking on what price I rate it, not what price the market is. Now I know a lot of people might say they want to bet twenty thousand dollars or five hundred dollars at what price they get. My mentality is we are betting because the price we're getting is incorrect. So why would you be basing anything on that? We're we're thinking that our price is correct, so that's what price I'm basing my staking on. Yep, yep, okay, yeah. Now, so take so take us through the actual marketplace. There's obviously totes. Betfair, fixed odds, I'm not sure how many are actually liquid enough to get decent bets down. Are you treating you know, them all together uh, or you know, a component of those as an efficient market? Well, unfortunately, I'm in the, uh, I've probably got the code that, that is the hardest to get a bet on. Uh, we only have minimum bet limits in the trots in one state, and that's Victoria, and they come up anyhow before the first race. So uh, you can actually get a bet on them, obviously, across what is there, maybe eight eight or ten bookmakers these days, so you can, you can get a decent bet on then. But, you know, if you're trying to bet in New South Wales or Queensland or something else, uh, it's just an absolute joke, the marketplace at the moment. Um, I posted something on Twitter the other day, which was everyone found quite amusing, and even a, a couple of uh, people on boards and and even someone from one of the jurisdictions have rang me about it to ask me about it because they couldn't believe it. But I tried to have 300 on a $16 shot, I think it was. And it took me 16 bets to get there. And one of the bets was six, 60 cents on something. Another one was eight bucks at this. And I actually had it written on a piece of paper. It's on my Twitter there. But it was something like 16 bets to, to get, you know, $300 on, on what was a $16 chance, you know, to win 4500 which was a decent bet. But, you know, to win, that just shows you the extent of how many times you have to have a bet. And that was obviously without minimum bet limits. So, so that's uh, how hard it is to... To, to get on not you know i'm not betting to win that big every every bet obviously that was just something out of the ordinary but um that's how it was yeah so let's take victoria then they have minimum bet requirements in place now 
when you're betting into those markets, let's say fixed odds, is it just you versus that individual bookmaker or is it a is it an actual marketplace where there are other people that can have an opinion or, or a decent impact on the market? So the way the trots works at the moment, um, and this is it's absolutely ridiculous, but this is how it works. Bet365 go up first um, and then everyone copies them. And it's as simple as that. So there's one, there's, there is literally one bookmaker in Australia uh, um, doing doing ratings or doing prices, and everyone uh, copies them. You know, you get companies like UBet that might tweak them. They might have an opinion, but you know, if Bet three six five or four dollars, they might go four twenty or three eighty. But that's as far as it goes. So when I said before that, you, if you look at what's what's there in the morning, you know what you're going to get because every company goes the same price or within te- one roll of that price. So that's how weak our uh, industry is. So if you can get on, there's actually no better time to get on because, in theory, I only have to beat one person, and that's that person that puts the odds up first at Bet365. Now, the the other stupid thing about it is, and I'm not trying to um, put a negative of any company, etc., whatever, but we know that they're not one of the strongest companies to let people on, yet everyone wants to copy their odds. It's, it's just absolutely crazy. So fixed odds-wise... For for Victoria and the minimum bets, everyone has to be up at that hour mark. Um, but but for, for states like New South Wales, you know, one company might put their odds up at 9am for race one and then they don't put odds up for race two to 10.30 and then odds for race three are up at 10.31 and then odds for race four are up at 11.30 and it's, it's just an absolute nightmare. You're literally sitting in front of your computer clicking refresh, wasting your time waiting for the odds to come up. Um, there is just... It just got so far to go at the moment. I don't know how it got to this stage, to be honest, in the harness racing and greyhounds at the moment, but that's how it is. At least with Victoria, they have managed to get the minimum bets and everyone has to about one hour before the first. So there is a little bit of, um, you know, at least you know when you can get on. The other problem there being, though, is they might go up two or three hours before and the people that can get on to win might knock the price off before you, whereas you might have to wait till till then uh, certain companies obviously bet better than others and that depends who you are i can get bets i can get good size bets on it one or two companies whereas other people can't even get a cent on at those companies but they can get on at others it's just uh it's just crazy there's no rhyme or reason about it and it's it's like a lottery but as i said if you can but if i as i said if you can get on there's actually no better time to be a punter because i am literally playing against one person now they have to price every race and every horse in every race and post it live, I only have to pick the eyes out of it and beat them every so often. And if I stake correctly, um, if, you know, with my way of staking, I might have, even if I bet into eight races, I probably only have to win two to actually come out in front, which means I only have to be better than them one in four times, if you know what I mean. So um, that's where my edge is at the moment. Basically, it's, it's me versus one other person. Yeah, no, I was just I was thinking about NFL where you have a global marketplace, global market intelligence. It's very efficient, liquid pools, and it's very difficult to win versus and that's why the difficulties, the difficulties you're talking about trying to get on. Uh, it's probably a few old employees at Bet Three Six Five. You probably know them by name. I do. And it's <laughs> it's you versus them day to day. And then you know, having a subscription uh, service behind me, this was the other issue, and this is the reason I've actually had to close my company. But um, you know, um, not only am I betting into it, but I've got 40 or 50 guys betting into it straight after me. And I've worked out that there's probably anywhere from 
you know, six seven thousand dollars going on one horse every race, you can imagine the odds are just ridiculous. Like the week before I closed my company, the one of the reasons I pulled it was one horse, or it might have been a greyhound, but the the, the, the official flux um, at at the biggest bookmaker in Australia was six dollars to three dollars in one hit. That was the first flux, six dollars to three dollars. Now I tried to send that that particular dog out of, as a four dollar chance. And if I've got 40 guys behind me trying to bet, you can imagine how many didn't get on when it's $6 to $3 in the first fluctuation. So I'm guessing then, you know, tote betting, paramutual betting is just not a viable product or option for you then? It's not a viable product. There might be four or $5,000 in the tote. So, I mean, we go back to that instance where a one-off that I wanted to have $300 on a $16 chance, what would happen to the pools if, you know, with this, you know, five, even if there's 10000 in the pool, what would happen to that pool if I had 300 on it, you know? Now, my golden rule, my golden rule is price is king. I never take one cent unders. If I've got something $2.01 for some reason and it's $2, I don't touch it. It's it's I'm that disciplined now that I don't touch it. Um, I've got to get the 205 to, to back it. So the reason I never will back anything on the tote is because I'm not guaranteed to get that price. Um, you know, even if I'm having, you know, if it's, it might be $10 on the totes, but it's $5 fixed odds, we know it's going to firm, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I just can't, I can't ever back anything on the tote because my golden rule is price is king and I won't take one cent under my minimum price that I'll take. And people don't believe it, but I used to have a live chat page on my on my website and they couldn't believe that, um, they couldn't believe that that was actually the case. So many people would take that little bit of unders, but it's just it's just the way it is. It's just I won't touch unders at all, under what I think it will be. So have you got any other options then, exotics or laying horses that might be viable? Well, the, the, the Betfair liquidity for trots is, is only really happens probably 30, 30 seconds to a minute out. Um, and by that by that time, yeah, okay, I might be able to back my saver, but the one that I've backed has probably gone off, to be honest. Um, so it's pretty rare that uh, I actually use Betfair to, to bet because most of the stuff I do, I've backed it early. Um <laughs> Laying, yeah, sure. Um, I've even, you know, I've even at one stage had a city bed account. I've been there because I can get on. Uh, that's actually gone now, unfortunately. But uh, all my laying was done on a city bed account, um, and and that's that's now been a closed up thing. But that's where you know at least you could get on there. Uh, but as far as tote betting goes, it's just it's just not a thing for me. I, I can't even remember the last time I had a tote bet. I don't even bet in the quaddies or whatever. It's just because it's something I don't do. Um, again, everything I like to do, everything I bet on, I need to have known that I've got value, so I can't be assured that I'm getting value betting or quaddy. That's just my mentality. So you mentioned you stopped the company. Does that mean you aren't providing the subscription service because of the... Yep, oh, that's okay. right. So what's next then? If I was Harness Racing Victoria or anyone else in the industry, I'd be very concerned if someone like yourself has to stop their business and their service, which is you know centred around their product... What else can you do or, or have you thought about, you know, what's coming up next? Can you ring them up and tell them that, please? Because uh, so many times people thought that I was actually uh, criticising the industry, et cetera, on Twitter because I might, I was very vocal. But uh, we worked, we sat down with the, at, when, I, when I actually closed the doors, I had six services. I had a New South Wales Gallops. I had New South, uh, New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, Tassie Trots and a Vic Greyhounds. And I sat down with a couple of my blokes and we went through, uh, you know how many people subscribe to me, etc. And we we come up with a figure conservatively of about twenty five to thirty million dollars going through just through my business into the industry, um, and yet 
the jurisdictions thought I was having a go at them by trying to, to get stuff improved, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's their loss now, unfortunately. Yeah, you're basically pumping oxygen into their product and they aren't happy about it, it sounds like. I mean, some of the blokes that work for me actually said that these blokes should be paying us, but I never thought that as much as that far. But they, they don't understand how much money was actually uh, contributed by just the people subscribing to us. Like I said, we had sort of, you know, you can do the sums. We had 40, anywhere between 35 and 50 people or 40 people, 50 when it was going well, in six services at some stages probably turning over three or four thousand dollars each per day you, you can do the sums there and work out what that is for a year but it's it's plenty so what's next for you then yeah so we had to close the business down um basically because of the reasons i outlined i never wanted to be a company that i that gave out bullshit results all our results were transparent they were updated every day they were done fairly the the members voted on how we should actually record the results so everything was done transparent i never want to be one of those companies that that said we're getting $5 and everyone's getting $3. Um, it wasn't what it was about. Um, the last draw came that day when the flux was $6 to $3 and about 30 guys just were emailing me saying, we can't get these results, this, that, and the other. And I said, well, that's it. I'm never going to charge people for bullshit. That's just not what I do. So I closed the doors, um, basically. Yeah, so I do have a, a couple of uh, ongoing contracts at the moment still. I still do work for Giddyup. Um I still do uh, stuff for Betfair twice a week. That, that's free on the Betfair Hub, so the ratings are there for free on a Thursday night and on the weekend. And uh, yeah, and basically, I'm just going to uh, uh, become, you know, besides that, become a professional punter. I've got my guys that work for me. Uh, I'm still going to get a bit of information off them, and we're going to help each other out a little bit. But uh, other than that, um, yeah, it's now going to be. Hopefully, I can continue to, to bet full time now. So what's the trajectory of the industry in general then? If you're shutting up shop and, and others may be uh, you know, forced to follow, what's left for the industry to hold on to moving forward, do you think? Oh, to be honest, I, I can't see how there's going to be more than three or four bookmakers in five years' time. Um, you know, you've got all this stuff about the point of consumption taxes coming in. That's going to hurt. Um, it's only going to make bookmakers give us worse odds you know on the trots i've already got a cop stuff like 135 percent in a five horse race there was a race there tonight i'm not lying to you uh i wrote it down there was a, a race there today where they were betting a dollar six the favorite 285 the next horse and 101 the next three and there was another race where they were betting a dollar 41 the favorite a dollar 86 the next horse i mean come on this is the sort of stuff we've got to, that we've got to uh, get dealt up with in this industry. So I really don't know, you know. This is who's the- that good for? Are there owners that are profiting, or are drivers getting a fat check each week? Or I'm Mate, guessing there's no one at the track. Well, no one. Well, no one's going to be betting into that. No one's going to be betting into that. No one's going to the track. I actually went to Lismore Greyhounds, believe it or not, last night myself. I had a dog down there. Um, so I went to Lismore Greyhounds and there was about 30 people there, no bookmaker on track, you know. So um, I think I think there's only going to be three to four bookmakers on track. I think it's going to be the tote. For me, I think the tote's dead. I think they oh, I can't see how the tote survives, to be honest, um, except for, the you know, your mugs that are betting every day in the pub, etc. But for any serious punter, I can't see how they bet into a tote. Um, I'm pretty scared for it, to be honest, and that's why I'm looking for, looking at other ways to bet. That's why I, um, 
I've got a you know a couple of contacts that are that are Gallup's people that I get and that I bet into their stuff, and I'm even happy to subscribe to someone else's if they're any good. Um, and that's why I'm concentrating on doing quite a bit of sports betting as well because that's the future in it, I think. So we have to finish or leave this on a positive note. Uh, any harness racing aficionados, they might remember the big names of the 90s and 2000s even. Who are some of the best harness horses that you've seen and remember and maybe some of the best races that stand out throughout your time? Christian Cullen's my favourite ever. I think you mentioned it before. Christian Cullen was just, I was there with the night at won the Miracle Mile at, at Harold Park and it was unbelievable. Just never seen a horse like that. Um, horses like Blacks are Fake, um, I had my best win ever on a horse called Mr. Feelgood winning the uh, the Inter-Dominion at the Gold Coast, so I'll always remember that one. And then, you know, the, the days like now, you've got horses like Lazarus, which has unfortunately gone to America, and um, then there's, you know, some new up-and-comers that are coming. But for me, I, I, I just love Christian Cullen. He was my favourite. Um, you know, that's the glory days. But I don't, I don't, I don't buy into the these horses are better now than, than before. You know, everyone's – it's like any sport. When you were the best in your – at your time, you were the best in your time. There's no sort of comparing champions of different eras for mine. Ben, thank you very much for your time. It's certainly an area that I'm not an expert at, so it was a, it was a pleasure to chat and get your insights and thoughts on, on the industry and uh, all the very best with the next phase coming up for you. Well, Jake, thank you very much, and uh, I really appreciate it and had a good time. Thank you. <laughs>